This is lesson eight in our series on the letter to the seven churches of Asia. And I've titled this, The Church at Sardis Mostly Dead. And I'm going to be a little bit edgy this morning, and, and hopefully our technology is with us to play a little video clip. I'm going to let Billy Crystal introduce this message. <clears throat> yep. Yep. His <laughs> daddy can talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. That movie also has greatly influenced my uh, doing of weddings, but I won't do a I won't do a rerun of that for you at this moment. It is interesting that the distinction that that was drawn there between mostly dead and and totally dead, and it's a critical distinction that has to be made with respect to the church at Sardis because they are a church that is mostly dead. And it surely is a message of warning and instruction to churches besides Sardis as well. Now, if you'll take a look, and hopefully we're at our, on our map now, uh, Sardis, you'll see there in the, in the center of the map, is about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira and about 50 miles northeast of Ephesus. It is an inland uh, city or town, as you can tell. And if you look at the next uh, slide, you'll see that it was a, a city that was a fortification on top of a, a pretty inapproachable, inaccessible uh, hill, only 1,500 feet. But if you're in war, that's kind of tough. The next frame you'll see is, is just some of the, the high uh, slopes that would have to be uh, 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 climbed in order to bring about uh, military victory. You can see there again the the heights of the uh, of the location, and notice now down below the vineyards uh, that are there. And in this shot, notice the remains of the temple. That's because as the city grew, it 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 couldn't grow up; it had to grow down, and so it would literally grow down the the hill and into the lower lands uh, of the of the uh, Valley, the Hermas Valley, and uh, you can see this shot. I think next, looking down on the the little village of Sart from the the heights where that uh, city and and fortification once was. Now, I feel like you know that that statement from another movie. That's not a knife. This is a knife. Uh, but show this next uh, slide. This is the, the rushing. A Pactolus River. And, and I have to say to myself, I don't think I would have called that a river. That's what when we up in the north call a creek, or if you like, a creek. But uh, if you'll show the next slide, there is one thing that commends this rushing river, and that is they discovered gold in it, and it actually precipitated a gold rush 
which added to the, uh, the popularity of that town and also was the beginning of a jewelry industry, as you might imagine. Okay. Let's take a look at just some of the temples there that were, there were many and there's a lot of ruins. Just uh, flip through those quickly and you'll see uh, the temples that were there uh, in that period of time. And I think we can then pass by my introductory comments on that first point, that first PowerPoint slide, uh, Steve, and move to uh, Roman numeral two. In this text, we find a description of our Lord uh, that is given in verse 1. Notice he is the one who holds the seven spirits and who holds the seven angels. To hold uh, implies ownership on the one hand, and it implies control on the other. Now, I have to admit that that the, the expression, the seven spirits, is a little perplexing, uh, but you'll find it elsewhere in the book of, of Revelation. And uh, I want you to notice particularly in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Father, and from the seven spirits, New American Standard Version capitalizes that, rightly so in my opinion, uh, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. So I see in those verses the Trinity. I see God the Father, I see God the Son, I see God the Spirit, and in this instance, he is spoken of in terms of sevenfold, seven spirits. Now, I don't know whether this is true or not, but you know from Revelation that the word, the number seven is a very popular word. It implies a kind of completeness. It may be because there are seven churches that are being specifically addressed, that that it's possible that those who are from any one of those churches may think of themselves as getting one-seventh of the Spirit. Because there's, if you thought of one spirit and, and you're one of seven churches, then in a sense you get one seventh. Uh, some of you who are on the internet, and especially those of you, uh, condolences, who are on cable, one of the things that, that I discovered to my chagrin was that uh, the more people who got on cable, the poorer my service got. Because there was only so much bandwidth that you could get. That's why I went to fiber optics. But that's another story. But the point is that there's only so much capacity there. And some people may look at that in terms of the spirit and say, well, there's just one spirit and he's divided amongst these churches. If you speak of him as the sevenfold church, then each church can look at themselves as having one part, you know, one spirit with them because his capacity is not diminished in terms of the volume of people that are involved. That's my take. But I would say this. I think it's very, very important in this text that our Lord is is introducing himself in the context of the Holy Spirit. Because I think that's one of the elements that's critical to life. And it's also an element that is critically missing in death. Okay, let's look at the seven angels. I have to say, personally, I have moved in the direction of saying these angels are literally angels. 
That would be consistent with the use of the word in the rest of the book of Revelation. And I'll tell you why I think it's possible that, that even likely in my mind, that these are actual literal angels, each of which is associated with a church. Now, it's not surprising to see an angel who is associated with the nation Israel. It's not a, surprising to see angels who seem to have certain geographical turf. And I believe that it's probably an angel who had a particular angel who has a certain realm of responsibility. But remember in first Peter chapter one and verse 12, when it speaks about this salvation that's been revealed, it says that these are things into which the angels desire to look and, and you get the, the sense of them leaning over the guardrail of heaven, looking down at the church and saying, what? What's going on down there? They're looking and they're learning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, speaks of head coverings in the context of the angels who are looking and learning. Then you see first Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is talking about God working through the church so that the celestial hosts may look on and learn. So why should our Lord not, in sending a message to these churches also indicate to the angel who's associated with that church, listen up, you may learn a little more about what I've been trying to teach you, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. It wouldn't be surprising to me that that would be the case. Our Lord's assessment of the church is in the last part of chapter 3 and verse 1. And he says to them that they have a reputation or a name, literally a name for being alive, but in reality, they are dead. I say, well, mostly dead, not because of verse 1, but because later it's going to say that you, you develop those things which are almost dead. I think the reason he says they're dead is because he wants the shock value of, of what's going on. It's like going to the doctor, and maybe you've been minimizing your symptoms, and the doctor says to you, you're dying. Now, that has a way of getting your attention, doesn't it? And all of a sudden you say, you know, maybe that diet change he wants me to make and some of these things he's been talking to me about, that's really important. So to go from thinking you're alive to being told you're dead is a wake-up call. And by the way, that is precisely the exhortation, wake up. So I see that as a, as a shock value. There is a difference then between one's perception or even other people's perception and reality. There may be the perception of aliveness and the reality may be that of death and dying. Now let's look at the characteristics of, of this dying church that probably is appropriate for other churches as well. First thing I would note is there are no dramatic signs of death. You know, it's one thing for somebody to have a heart attack or some traumatic incident health-wise where all of a sudden there's the bells go off and you realize, i got a problem here. But there are certain kinds of dying that are actually undetectable or at least undiscerned by the one who is sick, perhaps by others as well. And I think that's true of this church. When we look, for example, at the church at Pergamum, where there's the error of Balaam 
And you look at the church at Thyatira where you've got the errors that are very glowing errors, eating meats offered to idols and immorality. You've got serious problems, either great doctrinal departure or great moral departure or often in most cases both. But those are really big red flags that get people's attention. When you read the, the words of our Lord to the church at Sardis, you don't see any great traumatic uh, evidences. There's no heart attack thing going on as much as some kind of a slow, creeping, undetected sickness that is leading uh, to death. So it's a slow, not-so-evident decline. That's why I think you get those shocking words. You have a reputation for being alive. You think you're alive. You think you're doing well. You are almost dead. That'll wake you up, I think, if you're a true child of God, a part of his church. So it's apparently uh, unaware of its condition. And I would say others may well be unaware of its condition as well. When it says you have a name or a reputation for being alive, that may be a reputation that is held by the other churches. Remember, each letter to each church is addressed to all the churches. So in a sense, all these other six churches are thinking, wow, you know, that church at Sardis, oh, that's so great. You know, look at the attendance and all the stuff going on. And and they think that this is a church with a great reputation and all of a sudden... They, they read this and they say, oops, we've got the wrong criteria here uh, that's being assessed. Okay, so unaware of its condition, its works are said to be incomplete. That is, there are things that have begun that have not been brought to their fulfillment. They have not been brought to their, to their uh, conclusion. I, I interpret this in the light of a lot of New Testament passages, and I'm going to start with one of my favorites in 1 Thessalonians. And, and it relates to the, the next point, they had forgotten how they believed. Now, if you're reading in most translations, you're reading they had forgotten what they believed. Is that not right? What? Oh, if you have a New American Standard, bless that old dying translation. I love it. It has a little footnote. And what does it say by the word what? Literally, how? And I guess I'm asking myself, hey, guys, why don't you just leave it the way it is? At least the New American Standard says they changed the word. But why change it? Why change it from you've forgotten how you believed to what? Now, nobody questions the fact that it's important what you believe. But I, as I look, for instance, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it seems to me that there is a great deal of emphasis on the how. Look at this. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word how. 
in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of God has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Turn over to chapter 3 and verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as you all, as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul, remember, is telling the Thessalonians that they have, in a sense, been snatched away. And you remember the story of how they had to quickly depart from Thessalonica and they left. But Paul kept trying to go back. Why? Because he wanted to see if they were persisting in the same way they had begun. He gives the how they had begun. Now he wants to know, are they continuing in that way? And that's his goal and his objective. They send Timothy and they are greatly encouraged by the fact that the church is still pressing on in the same way it was when they first heard the gospel. Now when you think then, you got 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And then you've got a second Timothy chapter uh, four, verses seven and eight, where Paul is now saying, I have fought the fight. I finished my course. What he's saying is, I have finished the way I started. When I came to faith in Christ, I came to him with a certain goal, with a certain objective. Hebrews talks about running that race and finishing it well. But what it's saying is, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they have a goal to achieve. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I forget those things that are past, and I press on to the high calling of our Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3, he says, I introduced you to Christ as, as one would introduce a, a virgin to the one she will marry. And my goal and ambition is to present you to him, faultless and blameless. Over and over again in the New Testament, it speaks about those who have started in faith, that they need to continue on. And my friend, the finish line is not until death. So what Paul is saying, I think, is that somehow they've got this finish line that they've drawn somewhere before death, and now they're saying, you know, I've arrived, I've made it. We can just rest on our laurels, on our reputation, on what's gone before. And, and neither Paul nor our Lord or any other apostle would handle that kind of bunk. They had forgotten how they believed, and I think they had forgotten to what end they had believed. Somehow they've taken their ease. It's casual about purity. It says 
in a sort of a backhanded way, there are some, by the way, it's interesting, in, in, in most of the letters, they are addressed to the righteous remnant, and then there is a kind of a reference to those who are somehow outside that bandwidth and what the righteous are to do. In this letter, it is focusing on the church as a whole that needs to clean up its act, as it were, and then it speaks of the righteous as a kind of small remnant. And it speaks of them as them and they in the third person, which really says that the, 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 the messed up church, the bulk of the church, is in the bullseye of our Lord's words uh, to them. And, and then it says, there are a few there who have not soiled their garments. And then in the end, it talks of the reward, which is that they will walk in, in, in heaven. They will be dressed in their white garments. So it seems to me that there is a kind of slow decay that has taken place. And in the midst of having felt like they've achieved and arrived, there is a kind of casualness. And remember, this is a very corrupt city. Some have said that, that in the, uh, in the archaeology of, of all of this, there was a church that was right next to one of the heathen temples where some of the most corrupt practices uh, existed. Uh, if that's the case, then this church knew and saw worldliness all, all around it. And when one begins to slip in terms of their progress in the faith, then somehow we get soft. On, on sin. Now think about the sins, and I'm thinking now from my vantage point in life, and maybe it's a little further or not as far as some of you, but when I look back at the things, for instance, Roe v. Wade, that came about while I was in Dallas, and, and we were shocked and horrified as individuals and as a church at what took place, do you not find in yourself a little bit of a ho-hum toward that? I saw a headline just just this last week that somehow the, the they didn't say the church but let's just say conservatives have now gotten less enthusiastic about marriage being between the opposite sex and and abortion somehow we've tended to get used to it and, and it seems to me that's what he's saying here. You live in the midst of immorality, and now your garments, maybe you haven't looked lately, but they're not so clean. But it's imperceptible. It's like me. I think Jeanette's in the nursery, so I can say this. I have this bad habit of wearing my good clothes into the garage, and the grease just sort of leaps upon my clothing. And I come back, and I don't notice a thing. But Jeanette sees that my knees are now black, my shirt's grimy, you know, whatever, and I hear about it. Some of you like Pat. He knows. That's, that's the way they were. They had gotten, it seems, accustomed to impurity. And they're aloof regarding the Lord's return. Now, the way I read this, I don't see that every time the Lord talks about coming, that he's talking about the second coming or the rapture. It seems to me that when he speaks of his coming here in verse uh, 3, I'm going to get back to Revelation. That would help a lot. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, and he says, um, Wake up, 
Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. Repent, or remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come upon you. Our Lord speaks earlier about his coming, and it is a coming that is in judgment, not a coming that is in deliverance. In other words, you got to put into your equation that the Lord is coming again to take his uh, saved ones home. No doubt about that. But for a church that is somehow living casually and carelessly, the Lord may come a little sooner than that. And he may have a sword in his hand and he may do some discipline. It seems, I can't read the text any other way. And notice, they won't even see it coming. Because they really don't think there's a problem. Their, their reputation says to them, we're doing great. God says, really, you're not. Okay, let's look now at the warning. Chapter 3, verse 3. And we really just talked about that. But he's saying, I am going to come to you. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says to the church at Pergamum, he says, Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That doesn't sound good. And the church ought to be dealing with sin in their ranks. The cure. Chapters of uh, chapter three, verses two and three. Wake up, strengthen the things which remain, which were about to die. And then he says in verse three, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you remember how you have received and heard and then you repent and obey then you're starting back on the course, as I understand it. You realize that you have somehow diverted from the course. And it's very interesting to watch that, for instance, in places like 1 Corinthians. Sometimes it's related to false teachers and false teaching. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm old, I know it's a paraphrase, I'm old Johnny one note. All I can do is preach Christ and Christ crucified. But the problem is there have come to the church at Corinth those people who say, this teaching about Jesus, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. But we've got it. We now need to move on. Remember the deep things of Satan? We need to move on to other stuff that's really important. Paul would say, there isn't any other stuff. That's why every week we come to remember our Lord Jesus. That is it. That is where it's at. And when you come to the point of saying, I've got that down, let's move on. You have basically said, I finished that course. But Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. The way you get in is the way you stay in. And that is by worshiping Christ. So remember how you've received, obey and repent, finish, as it were, what you started. And then you have that word, strangely, about the righteous remnant in the third person. They will walk with the Lord dressed in white. There is within the church, as 
Paul teaches uh, throughout Scripture, in particular Romans chapter 9, God has always preserved a righteous remnant. And oftentimes in a church that is starting or is well on its way to going south, there are those people who are still clinging to what is really important to our Lord. And he assures them that they will walk with him in white. In other words, heaven for them will be a continuation and a extrapolation of what they presently experience. Now, if you're going around in dirty clothes, then being in heaven in clean clothes is a change, is it not? If you are walking with your garments white in this life, then heaven is just more of the same but better. And that's what I see our Lord Jesus promising to those who overcome. So, verse 5, the word to the overcomer. You too, I take it now he's looking at those who are faithful as overcomers, those who are dying as not overcomers, but if they repent and they return to the course on which they found themselves when they were saved, then they too, along with those righteous, will be dressed in white. Now here comes the problem part. And your name will not be erased from the book of life. Ooh, ooh. You know, does the pen, or the pencil, as some would think, the pencil that writes your name down in the book of life, does it have an eraser? That's the question, isn't it? Now, it seems to me that what you have to do is look at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, where it says this, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. It doesn't say erased, friend. It says it was never written down. And it says exactly the same thing in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8. In other words, this is not a text that is trying to undermine one's confidence in the eternal hope which lies ahead. It is a verse which is saying there will be no erasing of names. Your name is fixed there. Well, why doesn't he just say it that way? I think for the same reason you have those warning texts in Hebrews. Because those who choose to walk in dirty garments, so to speak, I don't think God wants them to feel real comfy and cozy. I think he wants them to be ill at ease. Not because they'll lose their salvation, but because they don't deserve confidence. Now, that's my take. But I think that the rest of the book of Revelation is at least clear that uh, Christians aren't erased from the book of life. Okay, conclusion. No HIPAA protection. I have to confess, I spelled it wrong the first time. That tells you how much I know about it. But I will tell you this. When I go to the doctor's office, it just drives me nuts that you have to have all this stuff about, you know, nobody's going to hear about this or that. And you think, oh, get over it. But that's the way everything is gone. Hey, there's no HIPAA protection in the church. People who are dying are told so publicly. Isn't that what we're seeing? You know, here you have this thing. You are really sick. And the whole church gets it. And not just the church, the other six churches. They get it. And we got it too. Everybody knows. This church 
is sick and dying. Why? Well, I take it because we have some responsibility. We have responsibility for others who are stumbling in their Christian walk. And, of course, there are other lessons for us to learn as well. But I find it most interesting that God does not conceal the health status of his church here or elsewhere in these two chapters or elsewhere in the Bible. This might challenge our definition of what it means to be alive as a church. (laughs) What do you think of when you think about a church that's alive? I've actually attended a church that was called the Alive Church. Uh, I think I would somehow pick another name, but, but that's okay. The question is, what does it convey? What does it convey to you when you think about Alive? Well, I want to slide down to my next point and see if we can think about that for a minute. How do you spot the signs of death and dying in a church? Why do churches die? There are two ways to think about this, and I must confess, I was on the first track before I got to the second track. The first track is this, that somehow what we are looking at is a wrong definition of what it means to be alive. Now, I can think today of of, of definitions that would include um, great numbers. Great numbers of people, That well, that seems to say that it's alive, might, might not. Um, beautiful building? Maybe, maybe not. Um, lots of missionaries? Good church budget? Everything going well? You know, whatever. You can look at all of these kinds of trappings. But, but what I'm trying to say is, it's possible you could have all of those indications and still not be alive, I think. And, and I think that it may be that in the days of the church um, at Sardis, that maybe the other churches had a bad set of definitions about what it was to be alive. They may have looked almost longingly at the church at Sardis and said, oh man, if our church was only like that church, oh, it, it is such a cool church. It is so alive. Well, reading this letter... <laughs> might want to revise your thinking on that point. So maybe we need to change our definition of what it means to be alive. Maybe we need to take a closer look at that. I think that's true. But I'm now inclined toward my my sort of second leaning, and that is a dying church is one that lives on the fumes of the past. It's running out of gas, so to speak. That's the church that really was alive, in my opinion. It's a church like the church uh, at Thessalonica at the beginning. But somehow, over a period of time, something's happened to the church, and now maybe it's just going through the motions. And that's what makes it so hard to detect. You may have the same programs, you may have all of the same elements, and, and it's really hard to tell <laughs> that something's happened. Sometimes it's hard to tell when something's dead. Usually it's not. I, I have to tell you a story. I have a very good friend who went to be with the Lord. He lived the full life. When I got the call that he had died, and he had, he had literally been on the brink of death, several times, and we had prayed that the Lord would take him home quickly and easily. And he didn't. He kept him around. But finally, he really had died, and I was uh, gathered with the family in the family room, 
And we were talking, and the chaplain from that particular hospital came to us. <laughs> I'll never forget. He said, I was just up in so-and-so's room. And, and I was talking with him, but he wasn't really that interactive. Um, he was kind of quiet. <laughs> yeah, he's quiet already. He's dead. <laughs> I, wouldn't it be kind of embarrassing to be in there having this conversation with a corpse, you know, and, and, and finally it dawns on you, there's no life. Sometimes it's hard to tell people are dead. And, and, and that's what I see here. Now, they're almost dead. Okay, they're almost dead. But the signs of life, they're in intensive care. You know, the machine's keeping them going, but they are really on the brink. And, and that's because perhaps they have really lived a vital Christian life. But now what you have is the form without the spirit. And one of the things I, I did, and I would encourage you to look at it more, look at the, look at the relationship between the spirit and life. Now, when you think about a dead body, you know, one of the things you see is there's a body there, but it, it, there's no life. Now, you could weigh it at, at one moment when they're alive and the next moment when they're dead. won't change. If you wanted to go by the standard of weight, <laughs> they're doing great. But the spirit being gone is what really makes them dead. And I'm inclined to say that the reason why this text begins with a reference to go, to our Lord with the sevenfold spirit in his hand, is that is saying to this church, there is plenty of spirit to go around. Is there not? Sevenfold spirit. Got lots of spirit for the church. I think when a church is dead, they're still going through all the motions, but the spirit is not there, or the spirit is not the one who is being relied on. That's a very, very subtle difference. We may have evangelistic programs and outreach. One may rest and rely on the Spirit of God and the other may not. The activities may look just exactly the same. That's the thing I'm inclined to say about this church. I think they had been doing well. And somehow in the course of time, that had led them to the false conclusion that they had arrived when they were only mid-course. And that's why our Lord has to stop them short in their tracks. Think about that church in Ephesus for one moment. The church in Ephesus had started out in such a way that all Asia heard the gospel because of what took place there. And yet Paul says in 2 Timothy, all of Asia has forsaken me. You know, if you look at the progression of what's said in Acts and then in First in and Second Timothy, and, and now in Revelation, you say to yourself, it's downhill. It's downhill. There's something dying. And in fact, if you want to think about it uncomfortably, what church do we know of from the New Testament that's still going strong? What church? Not one. Not one. Now, God has kept a remnant, and so his church is still going, but... You have to say churches die. Do they not? Churches die. And I would suggest that the reason they die is because they've let up. They were doing well, but they let up. 
They were resting in the Spirit. They acknowledged their weakness and their inability, and they trusted God to do what they could not. And then at some point, they began to trust themselves, their programs, whatever it was that were their strengths, and they started to die. So living in the Spirit, Paul speaks of uh, those who are devoid of the Spirit. Now, these, I take it, are unbelievers. But it seems to me that there are saints whose lives may often betray an absence of the Spirit. Well, individual application. For Christians individually, the message, I think, to, to us is just like it is to the church. We need to finish well. We need to finish well. And our course is not concluded. Our race is not won until we cross the line at death. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Forgetting what's behind and pressing on to the goal of the upward call of Christ. Nobody better lay off the accelerator until we cross that line. And secondly, there may be some here this morning, I don't know, who really are dead. You know, they're not almost dead. They're really dead in the Ephesians 2 sense. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, apart from God and enemies with him. And Paul goes on to say that God and his righteousness sent his son to die in our place so that we might have our sins forgiven through him and we might have newness of life through him. And I say to you, if you're dead, really dead, there's good news. Because there is life for the dead who trust in Jesus. And if you're one of those, I urge you to do that today. Father, thank you for this text. How easy it is to become complacent. How easy it is to, to be swimming upstream and to lay off of our, our strokes. And suddenly we find ourselves floating down, not up. Help us, Father, as individuals and as a church to have our eyes on the goal, to look to Jesus and to press on until you come for us in Jesus' name. Amen.